All right, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Many years ago, I uh, had stepped out of my my little study. This is probably uh, maybe 20 plus years ago now. And when I came back, Melinda had been in there and she had a post-it note. I had I had study notes and books spread. And some of you who uh, are my age and perhaps older will, will remember a sitcom that goes back to the 70s called The Odd Couple, Oscar and Felix. Well, I am Oscar in terms of what my study looks like. It's just embarrassing. And I came back from um, from lunch, and she had a Post-it note on there, K-I-S-S, honey. And uh, when I questioned her as to what she meant, she said, keep it simple, sweetheart. <laughs> That's not exactly what it means. You and I both know that. So I will endeavor tonight to keep it short, sweetheart. Proverbs chapter 4. Why do people do what they do? That's the question, isn't it? Why would a woman with six children decide that she wants eight more? Um, Why would a doctor, knowing a woman has six children, enable her to have eight more? Um why, why do your children do what they do? Um, for goodness sakes, why do we do what we do? Well, Proverbs chapter 4 gives us some insight. We're going to start there and we'll look at some additional places in the Scripture. The simple biblical answer, just the straightforward, concise answer, is that we do what we do because of the inclination of our hearts. We do what we desire. We do fundamentally what we love. In Proverbs chapter 4 then, and verse 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, or the English uh, standard version from which I'm reading says vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Some translations will say from it flow the issues of life. But what it's describing here in this Old Testament section of wisdom literature is that the heart is the main thing in life. It's the central functional point in every person's life. And if we were to kind of glance back through uh, Proverbs as to what leads up to that, it starts off in verse 1, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, be attentive that you may gain insight. And um, then um, verse 4, let your, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. The imperatives that follow, verse Five, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, she will keep you. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words. Uh, Verse uh, 13, keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked, do not walk in the way of evil, avoid it, do not go on it. All of those imperatives that come through Proverbs chapter 4 really are functions of the heart. The will is addressed here. They're commands. They're not suggestions. But all of those imperatives, the ability to hear, the ability to obey, the ability to understand, the ability to imply godly instruction really are not functions of the ears. It's a function of the heart. And so Proverbs 4.23 comes with this, this bold admonition that we are charged to keep our hearts with all vigilance or diligence because out of the heart flow the issues or the springs of life. In other words, what the Scripture is saying here and elsewhere is that we function on the basis of our heart's inclination. 
That explains why we do what we do. It explains why people do what they do. It's a simple answer. It doesn't get into the, the complications of behavior and motivations. We, we can't see or understand another person's motivation. But the set or the disposition or the inclination of the heart is the foundational behavioral mechanism in life. When God created us, He created us into two constituent parts. There's the physical part, which our culture today puts so much emphasis on. Uh, The way we look, our appearance, how we dress, and so on. We understand that. We get the part of the hair, the color of the eyes, the shape of the figure, the height. All of those distinctive things by which we identify one another. We visually recognize one another. But God also created an inward part, the real significant part of us. It's the real us. We're made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 talks about framing all of creation and God brought everything into being by the power of His Word. And when He comes to verse 26, the apex, the climatic point of creation is to frame and form man whom He designated as both male and female to frame them after His image and likeness and to charge them with certain cultural mandate responsibilities. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it elaborates on that. The Scripture does. God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a what? A living being, nephish, or a living soul. He took a rib from the woman, formed of it, and so on. Now, by implication... If there's going to be that living inward part that bears the image of God, he had to breathe life into Eve or the woman as well. That's the part of us that is being addressed in this passage of Scripture, keeping the heart. There are a lot of synonyms in the Scripture for heart. You may read soul in some places. You may read spirit in other places. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 joins those together so that some people think we're we're a trichotomous or a tripartite person. We, we have a body, we have a soul, we have a spirit. But I think the scripture really says that, that there is a material part of us, that part that you can handle, that part that you can see, and there is that not immaterial, as in it's meaningless, it's not important, it's not significant, but that non-material part of us. The scripture says that when, um, when this body ceases to function, that for believers to be separated from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And there's conscious life there. Luke chapter 16 in the parable that Jesus tells between the the rich man and uh, the poor man, Lazarus there. Not Lazarus from John 11, but the poor man in in, uh, Luke 16. There was conscious life in eternity. The poor man realized that, that he was being comforted. And the rich man realized that he was being tormented. But the body had ceased to function... That non-material part now is fully aware, fully conscious, fully alive. So in Proverbs 4.23, when the scripture says, Keep your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life, it is obviously then addressing that inward part of us that, that in a very narrow, restricted sense bears the image and likeness to God. When the scripture talks about keeping the heart, it's talking about the the things that make up our hearts, our mind, that part that understands, that thinks, that discerns, that comprehends, that reasons, that 
rationality part of us. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever tell us to abandon rationality. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to not think because that's part of the image and likeness of God that He stamped in us. So it's not only the rational part, the mind that thinks and understands, but it's also the affections, what the Puritans call the affections or the desires. It's our likes and our dislikes. It's what we love and what we hate and what we loathe. That inward part of us is composed of understanding and it's composed of affections. And it's composed of a will. The power to choose. The power to think and understand and therefore choose. That's what separates us in many cases from from um, the animal kingdom. It's instinctive with animals. They act on the basis of instinct. And there's not that that image of God stamped inside of them. But it's that capacity to think, to reason, to like, to love, to loathe that engages the will, that enables us to choose this and refuse that. And if you've been at Gracie Van for any length of time, you've heard about sin and you've heard that generally we're opposed to it. (laughs) We are opposed to it. Let me be on record as saying we're completely opposed to it. But because of the fall, because of the devastating impacts of the fall, that image of God inside of us has been fractured, not eradicated, not annihilated, but it's been fractured as though you were to take a mirror and slam it to the ground and it would fracture into multiple pieces. That image, apart from redeeming grace and the sanctifying work of God's grace and working by God's Spirit, by God's truth, is like going to uh, the Mid-South Carnival in its heyday and going through the house with the mirrors there and beholding a distorted image in the mirror. You're seeing an image, but it's distorted. The image is there and it's you, but it's distorted. And that's what the fall has done. It's distorted that image, not obliterated it, but distorted it. So why do people do what they do? Why do we do what we do? Why do our children do what we do? The scripture addresses it as a function and inclination of the heart. It's the tilt of the heart. And our hearts were so devastated by the fall that that apart from the work of, of God in grace, we miss the target that God has set for us. And I was sharing today, I've actually shared this with several people today, that that rebellion, the, the opposition to God's design and order doesn't improve the design and order. It worsens it. It makes it worse. With all the attending miseries associated with rebellion and disobedience and sin. And so now this this image of God, this heart part of us, misses the target, wanders from the path, strays from the fold, rebels against the standard, oversteps the line, twists the way, disrupts divine harmony, and resists the restoration of that harmony through the saving work of the Lord Jesus. And so when the Lord comes to us and He begins to work on us to change us and transform us, He doesn't start from the outside. He starts from the inside. And he changes, he begins that that transformative work through the power of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to life, bringing us to faith, and bringing us to repentance toward him. He 
He reorients us from the inside. He changes the tilt of the heart. He changes it. It's like an axis chain change. We revolve around ourselves and serving ourselves. Uh, Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We, we manufacture out of the heart the things that we worship, the things that we serve, the things that we love. And when the Lord wants to change us, He begins with the regenerating work that changes the tilt of the heart. So that formerly we loved sin and hated righteousness. Now we love righteousness and hate sin. Doesn't mean there's not a struggle. Paul's words in Romans 7 indicate that there was a titanic struggle within the heart of the apostle. He said, the things that I would do, that I don't do. The things that I would not do, I find myself doing those things. You ought to read that from the Living Bible sometimes. It's pretty self-descriptive at times, some sections in there. He delights in the law of God inwardly, but he finds another law waging war in his members. So when God changes us, it starts from the inside, not the outside. And those changes begin to work themselves out. And the gospel, listen, the implications of the gospel begin to work themselves out into our families, into our places of employment, into our hobbies, our neighborhoods. It begins to express itself in all of life. Isn't that the order that the Bible is written in? Sunday, he delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt. Then he gives them the law of God. He says, this is how life is to be framed. And knowing their hearts, knowing their tendencies, knowing fundamentally who they were, he prescribes a system of sacrifice and a priesthood to offer those sacrifices in Exodus. All, of course, pointing us eventually toward Christ. But he works by the power of the Spirit to begin to change us from the inside out. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. This is the way Jesus described the tilt of the heart and the, the interconnectedness of the heart with behavior. If we would explain why we do what we do and why others do what they do, it, we can't get to the depth of the explanation, but this is how Jesus addresses it. In Luke chapter 6 and verse uh, 43, for instance, he compares, he compares human behavior and, uh, and he compares our words to the fruit on a tree. L- listen to the analogy in Luke 6, 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Christ is comparing people here to trees. And under this analogy, fruit is the outward manifestation of the connection of the roots and what kind of tree. So when Jesus says, if you want to change the fruit, you don't get a staple gun and begin to staple apples on an orange tree. Because it's fundamentally an orange tree and it will produce after its kind. But this is how... We generally approach behavioral issues and behavioral changes. We try to staple things on a tree that's inclined in the wrong direction. We try to staple good fruit on a bad tree. And if I could kind of stop this tape for a moment, I would tell you parenthetically this evening that that 
unfortunately, this is a moment of very candid self-confession. And I'm only confessing this because the really spiritual folks are here on Wednesday nights. And I know that you will, particularly if Dr. Young's not here, I know that you will keep my confidence. So much of my parenting and orientation toward life has been going around with a staple gun trying to staple things on to trees, trying to amend and trying to manage when the real issue is that of the heart, the shape and bent and inclination of the heart. Under the analogy that Jesus is giving here in Luke chapter 6 in the comparison of behavior of tree, the metaphor equals behavior. The fruit specifically referred to in this passage is the words. In other words, the words are an expression of the heart. Now, this may kind of jolt our thinking a little bit here. People don't make me say things I should not say. People don't make me act in ways I should not act. They only trigger what's in my heart. So the circumstances only bring to the surface what's in the well. You drop the bucket in the well and you pull the bucket up. What's at the bottom of the well comes up. I react to people in traffic. I react to circumstances. I react to my children. I react to my wife. I react to you. Ultimately, I'm the culprit. The situations, the pressure, the tension, the frustration, the stress has only squeezed out of the tube what's in the tube. Here's how we handle it so often sometimes. As we blame shift and we label accusations and we get frustrated and we voice our frustration when the Lord really would desire to change our hearts and use those circumstances to reflect our hearts back to us. Proverbs chapter 7 says, As the silversmith heats up the silver seven times, he's talking about a process there by which the heat surfaces what's actually in the silver. And the heat brings to the surface the dross, the impurities, and the silversmith would scoop off the impurities and he would keep heating it so that what keeps bubbling up to the top is the impurities. That's what stress and pressure does in our lives. It really brings to the surface what's in the heart. And those unguarded moments, those, those pressure moments, only squeeze out of us what's actually in the heart. The tree produces the fruit and the heart produces the behavior. The simple truth is that this forces us to accept responsibility rather than shift responsibility. It forces me to own up to my own inconsistencies. It forces me to own up to my own immaturity. It forces me to engage in specific intelligent repentance rather than to blame you for what's coming out of my life. The scripture in James 1 says that God's word's like a mirror. And uh, the, the deceived person is the person that looks into the mirror of God's Word and then, then forgets what manner of person they are when they leave. Well, God has the most masterful way of reminding us what kind of people we are. He can remind us through our places of employment. He can remind it through our family relationships. He can remind us of what's in the heart through, uh, through traffic or just all kinds of ways. And the typical way that this is that this is handled is through what may be called externalism. 
externalism. It's the way we handle other people. We're, we address the behavior rather than the heart. If you would turn back left just a moment to Matthew chapter 23. This is the typical self-righteous pharisaical response. It's what he charges the Pharisees of being guilty of. They were, they were so concerned with the outward appearance that they neglected the heart. They were concerned about how they were coming off in the eyes of people. They were concerned that they, they looked righteous, they looked religious, they looked like they're, they had it all together. And Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 and following, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! A hypocrite, hypocrites, was a person that acted from behind a mask. It comes out of the Greek theater. A person would wear a mask and they would act from behind that mask. So, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What he's, uh, what he's actually charging them with here is, um, is adorning the outside to be seen to look good without really addressing the issue of the heart. On the outside, they're scrubbed clean, but their heart is a smoking cauldron full of iniquity, evil, and sin. And one way that we attempt to address and handle other people's behavior issues is by attempting to staple good fruit on bad trees. And how do we do that? Well, we threaten. We raise our voice and we intimidate. We, uh, we pout. We grow angry. We manipulate. We instill guilt. But the Scripture reminds us that if there's going to be substantial life change in my life, and there's going to be substantial life change in you, it will be because God by His Spirit is changing the bent and shape and inclination of our hearts. And He begins that in the process of regeneration. He continues that through all of our life in a process called sanctification. It's never perfected in this life. It will be someday in something uh, theologically called glorification. But still, He's steadily at work in our hearts. Now, if you think for a moment about your sources of anxiety, your sources of frustration, your sources of anger, your source of rant and rage and frustration, just think for a moment, what is that really saying to me? Now, what's it saying about them? What's it saying about me? And how then would the Lord lead me to repent of that? How would He lead me to specifically, intelligently, to repent from the rant, the rage, the anger, the manipulation, the frustration, the control, and to turn toward Him in trust and obedient faith? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I believe if we were serious about that, the Lord would lead us biblically to uh, make those appropriate changes. So... In the Scripture, we come face to face with our own hearts. We see them as they really are. We understand that by the grace of God, He's not going to, uh, He's not going to let our, let us off the hook about these kinds of inward issues. He's at work in us, Philippians 2, to will and to do of His good pleasure, to change us, to mold us, to fashion us. It's a tough work. It's a hard work. It's like a dripping faucet that, that annoys you sometimes. That's what repentance feels like. It's like the dripping faucet that you can't turn off. It's shocking, it's stunning, it's 
all of those things and more, but it's all part of God's design to change us inside out so that then the behavior is changed in appropriate ways. Well, all of this leads us tonight to a final observation, and that is it compels us to face our lives with with faith and repentance, born of grace and humility. It knocks all the smugness out of us. It knocks all the false platitudes and religiosity out of us. I was um, in another city recently, and uh, I was getting something to go at Cracker Barrel. You know, one of the things I've noticed about Cracker Barrels, they're always crowded. Have you ever noticed that if you travel? And more than one occasion, I've thought two things. I've thought, this guy's got a gold mine here. And the second thing I thought is, why wasn't I smart enough 30 years ago to get stock in Cracker Barrel? I mean, there, you would know there's an economic downturn if you drive by a Cracker Barrel. The parking lot's always full. So I got an order to go from London, me, and I was waiting, and I was killing time. I was walking around the store, and I saw, you know, the nice little ceramic cups and the plates, kind of the decorative things that that um, that some may, may like, and they had all these platitudes on there. And I got to thinking about that, about the platitudes, you know, about be wise and, and be honest and all of those things. Wisdom and honesty, integrity, compassion, gentleness, industry, uh, dependability, faithfulness. That's the product of the work of God's Spirit in our lives. We're not any of those things in and of ourselves. And so if I want to see that produced, say, in my kids, for instance, that becomes a serious matter of prayer. It becomes a serious matter of sanctification in my own life, my own heart. And if I want to see those things cultivated in my own life, then I'm compelled over and over again to face my life with, with faith and the gospel and the redeeming work of Christ. And the fact that, that I struggle with these things because... I'm a son and I'm accepted as a son, not in order to be accepted and not in order to be blessed. But it compels an honest faith, an honest repentance, and an honest grace that's born of humility. And i tell you what else that does for me. It knocks some of the starch out of my collar when I would sit in such harsh assessment and judgment of other people. Because in realistic moments of self-appraisal, I recognize that the seeds of every other sin lie within my own heart apart from the restraining work of grace. But for the grace of God, there go I. And that leads to a healthy a healthy assessment of myself and it leads to compassionate treatment of other people. I see brokenness and know but for the grace of God I would be seated on that side of the table. But for the grace of God, you would be visiting me on Sundays in visitation hours. But for the grace of God, we don't think more highly of ourselves. Facing your own heart and your own life realistically as the Scripture exposes it leads you to um, to such um, such honest self-assessment that you just it whittled you down. You're not too big for your britches. It becomes a means of grace leading us to faith and transformation and hope in Christ as He holds Himself out to us in the offer of the gospel. And so rather than labor so anxiously and nervously to amend externals to look good in the eyes of other people, God works steadily within us. <clears throat> he does it by His truth. He does it by His Spirit. 
And He does it all for His glory and the ultimate good of our souls. I find it fascinating on the one hand and encouraging on the other that one of God's central covenantal promises in the new covenant referred to in Ezekiel 36, tucked away in kind of an out-of-way place in an Old Testament prophet is this central covenantal promise that I will wash you with clean water. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a new heart. And I will incline you to walk in my ways and to keep my statutes and judgments. And I say, oh, Father, if it's not for your work in me, left to myself, that will never, ever be a reality. So, it's a matter of the heart. Why do people do what they do? We have to look at our own hearts. And sometimes, apart from grace, that's a pretty discouraging picture. Father, we thank you so much that in spite of who we are, knowing full well who we are and what we are, for your own glory and as a means of magnifying your saving, redeeming power, you've set about changing us to bear the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the hope of Christ. Thank you for the presence and filling and power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that we can be ruthlessly honest with ourselves in your presence because there's nothing in us or about us that's hidden from your eyes. It's all there open before you. And there's nothing about us this evening that could cause you to quench your determination to bless us and to love us and to make us more like Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.